Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Green Onions, one of the hundreds, if not thousands, of classic songs that was written by a Songcraft guest. It's been two years now since we first launched Songcraft, and after 51 episodes, we thought it would be a great time to look back at some of the memories over the last couple of years. Yeah, I kind of have always liked those episodes of maybe Seinfeld or Friends or one of those shows. They kind of do like the the flashback episode. Right, And they show you all the stuff that happened before, and and you kind of get a taste of everything. And that's kind of, it's kind of what you always do on your 52nd episode, right? I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. 52 is that magic number. Yeah, like, you know, every couple that has like a 52nd wedding anniversary. <laughs> right, you, We've all been to a great surprise 52nd birthday party. <laughs> absolutely, and that's yeah. what this is. And we are inviting you to our party. And so here's what the party is going to consist of today. We're going to go through, we kind of handpicked, uh, I, I don't even know how many, maybe a dozen or so of our favorite episodes and some of the some of the moments that really stood out for us. Some of them are funny. Some of them are really informative in terms of the songs themselves, um, but they kind of give a little bit of an overview, a cross-section of what Songcraft has been these last couple years. And with that, we're going to get into reflecting on some moments in Songcraft history. Well, we wanted to kick things off with the very first interview that we ever aired with Jim Peterick of Survivor, who wrote the all-time great hit, Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, crazy. And not only Eye of the Tiger, which was obviously his own band, uh, Survivor, but he wrote songs for 38 Special, like yeah. um, Rockin' Into the Night, Hold On Loosely. Um, I mean, this guy was like the king of crunchy classic guitar <laughs> rock. I mean, just right. killer stuff. And I think he he wrote something like 30-something songs that appeared on the Billboard chart, and Jeez. some of that has been overshadowed by the absolute uh, legendary status of, of Eye of the Tiger. But you start digging into into the catalog of some of these guys that we talk to, and you realize, man, how many hits has this guy written? Yep. That's crazy. But for two kids that grew up in the 80s, I mean, really, there's nothing better than hearing the story of how Eye of the Tiger was written. Oh man, you talk about a, a movie that had Mr. T and Rocky and Hulk Hogan in it. Right. Uh, yeah, I almost lost my mind when I saw that movie, <laughs> and, and I still almost lose my mind when I hear the song. Yeah, it makes me want to do push ups. <laughs> totally. Let's do some push ups. All right. I got home and I had an answering machine message from Sylvester Stallone, and he basically said, I got your number from Tony Scotty, and I uh, got this new movie called Rocky 3. I love your guys' sounds, you know, uh, and I'm going, yeah, right. This is not Stallone on my answer machine, right? Uh, and uh, and yet, I called him back, and he answered, and basically said, yeah, I, I love. I heard Poor Man's Son. That was the one that that hooked him. It's funny you should mention that. That was the sound he was looking for. He called it street. Huh. He really liked the rawness of that sound. Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, Frankie and I really going for that sound in premonition. And one of the things that that caused that wonderful rawness was the fact that we couldn't find a good room to record in in <laughs> in uh, at Rumbo Studios, and yeah. we ended up recording the drums in the kitchen, <laughs> wow. uh, much to the chagrin of the captain and Neil, who owned the <laughs> studio. But uh, they, you know, they wanted our business, so they had to work around it. Right. But, uh, that was part of that rawness that Stallone heard was the Dave Bickler's urgent vocal and that drum sound. Yeah. Uh, and he says, uh, Stallone goes, well, look, man, you know, uh, I'm going to send you guys the first couple minutes of this movie, and I want you to write a song to this montage. 
you know, that has Mr. T in it and, uh, and Rocky, and, and you'll, you'll get the vibe. Right. You've got to rent a Betamax Pro, and, you know, FedEx will deliver this, this reel tomorrow. So, you know, I found a Betamax Pro, set it up on the kitchen counter, and we just really got the energy out of it, you know, and I, I had my, you know, white less pull around my neck, and I just started kind of, you know, instinctually going, dig a 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 dig you know. And and I'm watching the punches being thrown, and I'm going, and every drummer in the world hates me because there's that one-off beat, you know. And they go, why did you do that? I said, I was trying to coordinate it to the punch. It does, it feels like punches when I think about it. Yeah, well, you got can't. all punches aren't equal, so you got to wait a couple beats, you know. But I always can tell the good drummers from the not-so-good drummers when they can't get that off time, you know. But uh, I had to call Stallone back. I said, look, that's a great montage, but I don't know what the story's about. you got to send us the whole movie. And he goes, well, I can't do that. The movie company won't let me do it. And I said, well, basically, we got to. we got to see this, you know, we got to see the whole movie. So, okay, you know. So the next morning, FedEx comes with the whole movie, and, you know, Frankie came back. And that's when the whole movie started, and the whole song started taking shape, because we saw what this was about. This is about the underdog rising up. Yeah. And, um, you know, and we heard that phrase that was already in the, in the movie. It was a rough cut in Burgess Meredith's character saying, Rocky, you're losing the eye of the tiger. Yeah. You know, you got to keep the eye. And of course, you know, I know, I know a hook when I hear one. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, that, that became the, the focal point uh, of the song. And, um, you know, I, I remember the next day, Frankie and I got together again, tried to write some lyrics, and I, I didn't know exactly where to go. And I have to say, Frankie started the chain of of uh, creativity. He says, "How about how about this?" He goes, "Back on the street, doing time, taking chances." I really loved that street feel of that, and I said, "How about this? Rising up, back on the street, did my time, took my chances." Yeah, and, and, and I put it in that perspective and told the story of this guy that was losing his passion, you know, yeah. and how he had to get it back, how he had to get it back, the eye of the tiger. Yeah, and um, from then on, for the next three days, I was, I was, well, I'm, I, I was a runner. I still run, but I was running a lot back then. And as I was running, I had the the tape recorder with me, and I was, you know, singing lyrics into the tape recorder, <laughs> and um, uh, it's some really embarrassing stuff on the way to what became a, a classic uh, lyric. Right. But one of them was, uh, uh, rising up, ready to spring. <laughs> <laughs> right. And when I look at that now, I said, what was I thinking, ready to spring? Yeah. That sounds so bad, you know. <laughs> but uh, you only know that in retrospect. Well, as much as Survivor kind of defined 1980s rock, there is no better shorthand representative for 1970s California rock than the Eagles. Absolutely. And I think um, one of the great early interviews that we did uh, with Jack Temchin was one of my favorites where he talked about, you know, writing some of those Eagle songs like Already Gone. And and, uh, I mean, Peaceful Easy Feeling. Yeah. Killer stuff. And and, uh, went on to write a a bunch of stuff with with Glenn Frey after the Eagles as well. 
um, which uh, I think like the one you love has that great yeah. that great saxophone. Maybe second only or Baker Street and Careless Whisper maybe have the most recognizable sax lines before that. Yeah, absolutely great stuff. But it's just cool to hear him talking about hanging with his friends Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry when these are all just like kind of working musicians that nobody had heard of yet. Yeah, and, and we're going to hear him tell the story of writing Peaceful, Easy Feeling. And I think the moral to this story may be, hey, if your friend's new band pops in and says, hey, we like your song, <laughs> maybe that's a real good thing, because they might turn out to be the Eagles. Yeah, yeah, so be open to those opportunities. That's the lesson. <laughs> I wrote that song in El... I started it in El Centro, California. My buddy had made a poster to advertise me, and... He put quotes from all these famous people about me, uh, very impressive quotes. Of course, these people had never heard of me. Uh, it was, you know, he was a very great poster guy, and he made it all up, and it was great. Well, this guy in El Centro had a little club. I guess he, he saw this poster, and he hired me. Right. So I drove out there and, and did a gig. It was like a, a coffee house that he put in a mini mall, you know, just this little, took a little room, and and so I played, and I was thinking I might try to go home with the waitress at the time. <laughs> she was going, oh, yeah, great, okay. And so I told the other guys to leave without me. Uh, and, then she, and then she disappeared and never came back. So <laughs> I end up sleeping in this little uh, place, you know, with a hard floor, and I, there's nothing there. And that's when I grabbed that poster and turned it over, and on the back I started writing a song. Hmm. So that's when I started it, and uh, I came back to San Diego, and I saw this girl at the street fair with these beautiful earrings, Hmm. so I put her in the song, Hmm. and I was quite anxious to fall in love with every possible woman that I saw, (laughs) and that's what I did, and then I, I just kept putting them in the song. Right. And the song's really about... As long as you're doing that, and as long as you're like that, you're never going to get anywhere. Uh, right. <laughs> it's only it's only when you when you don't need it that it's going to come knocking. Right. You know? right. So the song isn't really about one woman; it's about every woman that you saw. <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And then later, I thought, well, how did I get all those women down through this pen onto the yellow pad? I'd like to do that again. <laughs> but I thought, I don't know. I think doing things again is is one thing you can't do. You know. Right. So, right. Well, it sounds like you were better off having uh, written about them than even having met them all. <laughs> yeah, and some of the, the women I fell in love with, I did never did have to meet them. I just <laughs> looked through the window of my house and saw them at the bus stop. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. Uh, so that's how that song started. So then I got invited. Uh, I was staying at Jackson Brown's house while they were going to take me to see David Geffen. You know? right. So uh, I'm sitting there, and I went into the music room of Jackson's little tiny place. He blocked out the windows with the moving blankets, and he had a piano in there because you know he he would like to write where no one can you know hear mm. what he's doing. Yeah. And I'm in there playing the song, and, and uh, Glenn came over, and he came in and said, hey, what's that? You know, So I go, oh, well, it's my new song. Right. So he, he recorded it on a cassette tape, and the next day he came back and says, Jack, I got this new band I'm putting. Uh, we've only been together eight days, <laughs> and if you don't mind, we worked up your song. So he pushes the button, and on the cassette recorder, there they are, like 
playing peaceful, easy feeling. Mm. Now I understand that 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 you uh, are forever uh, tied into the great cultural institution, uh, the Wiener Schnitzel. That uh, didn't you write part of the song at the Wiener Schnitzel? That's true. It's funny how things happen. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, uh, I was on, in San Diego on Washington Boulevard, wandering around with my uh, Stella. $13 Stella pawn shop guitar that I always had. Hmm. And I sat down waiting for a Polish dog at the Wiener Schnitzel there on Washington <laughs> Boulevard. And that's where I wrote the last verse of Peaceful Easy Feeling. Wow. Uh, and so, like, you know, 40 years later, the mayor declares Peaceful Easy Feeling Day, and we have a celebration down there at the Wiener Schnitzel. And they <laughs> so put a great. little plaque on the outdoor table where I was sitting. Is there really? The most awesome thing is that forty years later, the Wiener Schnitzel is still there. So, so any so, any any rock and roll tourists out there can actually go to the Wiener Schnitzel and sit yeah. at the very table. Yeah, awesome. Where, where I wrote the last verse, the peaceful, and then they and then the uh, so they presented me with some plaques, and then the Wiener Schnitzel place themselves presented me with a solid gold wiener. <laughs> uh, which I still have and I'm not going to say anything more about I was about it. to say I think I might leave that one alone too uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of guys think they have one uh, <laughs> but they don't but I do so. that's amazing <laughs> you know when I end up going back through and, and editing these episodes sometimes the most difficult thing that I have to work with are when we start laughing. <laughs> right. And these guys make us laugh a lot. These guys and, and women that we talk to, there's some funny stories in here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that one about the golden wiener, like I, I was laughing even as we were listening to it right now. <laughs> right. I don't think that I have ever laughed as hard, not only at one of our interviews, but in my life <laughs> as when we went to Swamp Dog's house. Oh, wow. Um, and Jerry Swamp Dog Williams is kind of a cult figure. He's not a household name. Right. Probably the uh, song that he's best known for writing is She's All I Got, which was uh, an R&B classic by Freddie North and also became a huge uh, country hit by Johnny, Johnny Paycheck. Paycheck. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I mean, this guy is a character, and yeah. he is profane. <laughs> he is... That was the first explicit tag, I think think that we put it was on. it was and you know most of our interviews up to that point had been done on the phone right. I, I think we went over to, to jeff silbar's house who wrote when beneath my wings right. and hung out with him at, at his uh, home studio but swamp dog is one of the early ones where we actually went and met with uh with our uh, guests in person at their home and man i mean i, th I feel like i lost eight pounds in, <laughs> in uh in burning calories from totally. laughing that day yeah, and, and the interview, I mean, it was tough to narrow it down. We, it's a two-parter. Yeah. It was tough to even narrow that one down because it was so much good stuff, and I, I wish we could play all the jokes that we Oh, heard. my gosh, right. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I think they go to our website, and they look, and they see there's a lot of familiar names, and I think the Swamp Dog interview might sometimes get overlooked because he's uh, not as well-known right. universally as some of the other folks we've talked to, but uh, as long as you have a high tolerance for explicit language is the... <laughs> funniest yeah. and one of the the best interviews in terms i mean we didn't have to do anything we just right. we just hit go and let him take it and and it's still one that i uh always look back on really fondly and, and i think everyone should listen yeah to listeners it. don't sleep on the swamp dog interview and we're gonna let you hear a little bit of it uh, where he tells a story about because he was doing such a good job of sounding like other artists when he was doing his own stuff he actually got brought in under the names of some prominent artists <laughs> But he wasn't those people. No, he was not. So let's uh, let's check it out. Oh, oh, baby. 
Well, you actually wound up, didn't you play some gigs in the early days pretending to be other artists because you were so good at, at kind of channeling pe- different people's sounds and things? No. No? Of course I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was. <laughs> this guy played me at a club in Newark, New Jersey. Can't th- Woody's Corner. That was the name of it. Woody's right. Corner. One week, I was Larry Wheel. Couple weeks later, I was Lou Willie John. <laughs> People didn't know the difference. <laughs> Although I didn't sound like any of them. (laughs) Yeah, I did it. Oh, yeah. And then we went to Florida. I didn't know I was supposed to be somebody else then. (laughs) And they put me as, um, I'm thinking I'm singing as little Jerry Williams because I had my little baby, my everything out and all that. Right, right. Uh, but it had died by then. I had another record that right. was born dead. It was still <laughs> still born. <laughs> and uh, come to find out, the promoter he went on stage and then, ladies and gentlemen, and right here for you, it's the Ford top. Now, short as I am, <laughs> I'm Levi, right? <laughs> now, believe it or not, it was like in a Holiday Inn ballroom. Right, right. Everybody in there was white. Right. And they were applauding <laughs> as I was fucking up them people's songs. <laughs> there was a black guy, one black guy, standing up in the aisles about midway. He knew, didn't with he? With his coat over his arm. <laughs> And I said, we're going to have some problems. <laughs> I said, this nigga getting ready to be a major motherfucking problem. <laughs> so he told me, he said, that ain't the four times. <laughs> we took off. <laughs> So in the late 1960s, Swamp Dog was actually the first African-American staff producer at Atlantic Records. Mm. Um, and uh, boy, it's it's crazy when you stop to think about how many just absolute soul music classics came from Atlantic. Um, and even though they were um, recording stuff up in New York at their studios there, they also recorded tons of classic Southern soul stuff down at yep. uh, Stax in Memphis and then also uh, Muscle Shoals, um, Alabama as well. Um, but one of the guys that we got the chance to talk to that absolutely was on my wish list was Steve Cropper, who uh, people know him as the guitarist from the Blues Brothers, but uh, he's also the guy who wrote In the Midnight Hour. Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Tons of hits. That lick at the beginning of Soul Man by Sam and Dave, that's Steve Cropper. Yeah, play it, Steve. Yeah, and that's, that's one of those guys that I remember when you and I were back in high school, 
you know, talking about Steve Cropper all the time and to think that we would sit down and talk to him. Yes, yeah, absolutely amazing. And, um, you know, he he told us the story of probably one of the most difficult things he ever had to do professionally, which was um, finish the recording of Dock of the Bay because Otis, um, it, it the he'd sung his part, but mm-hmm. the track wasn't totally done. And Atlantic Records, when Otis died, wanted to put out something right away. So Steve literally, like, right after like his good friend and collaborator after. died... Yeah had to go in and and uh, deal with his grief by finishing this record and it's it's a classic. Yeah, let's listen. Sitting on the dock of the bay watching the tide roll away. Well, I don't know how I did that. Yeah. If I ever had to do anything difficult, that was it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That was rough. I, they called, uh, when I say the Atlantic Records call, and says, what do you got ready? We got to get a record out right away on Otis Jeez. Redding. And I said, we don't have anything ready. We hadn't, you know, we've been cutting for two weeks. We didn't have anything finished or mixed or whatever. Yeah. But we got to get a record out. And I said, man, it's still worried. In the morning, I guess you would say, and uh, just, I didn't feel like even doing anything for months. Yeah. And I went in on a, what did I go in on? A Tuesday morning, because they called us on a Monday. This plane went down on Sunday. And uh, I went in on Tuesday morning in the control room by myself at 730 and worked 24 at 7.30 that the following morning um, on a Wednesday. I went to the airport and handed a flight attendant uh, who was headed on American Airlines to LaGuardia Airport and handed her this tape. <laughs> there was no copies of it. Wow. This tape, which when the plane got there, there was a representative from Atlantic that was there to pick it up. When, she, you know, when they put the stairs up for the plane, she walks down and hands this guy the tape. That was it. I don't remember anything I did after that. It's, it's, I remember that whole 24-hour period. Yeah. Uh, and the last I remember the last time I saw this was the Friday before. And uh, I got out, Doc of the Bay, and he came in, popped his head in the control room, and he said, Steve, he said, I'll see you on Monday. I said, great. And this was a Friday afternoon. He was leaving to go to his Friday night gig where he was going to. He got his own plane, so yeah. Anyway, I was setting up to do those electric guitar licks, so I was never heard those, never heard the mm. uh, gulls, seagulls, and the waves, the ocean waves that I right. put in the, in the record. And you, they're back in the background. The, the guitar licks are out pretty front, but yeah. uh, the other stuff is in the background. You don't hear it unless you really listen for it. Yeah. But he didn't. He never heard the record mix, unfortunately. Wow. But wow. we had been living with that song and that, the take of that song for about two weeks, sure. week and a half, maybe. Yeah, and yeah. we knew, and and the thing was, the reason we didn't finish it right away and say this is it, because we already had we had cut the horns live and a bunch of stuff. He wanted to put backgrounds on. I said, you know, next week after, well, the week after next, I guess after you leave with through with you, I'm doing the Staple Singers. I said, I know I can get them to sing backgrounds. Wow. Oh, wow. He says, man, that'd be fantastic. Well, it would have been. Yeah. And if they had done it, I probably wouldn't have thought of doing uh, the waves and all that, but. When we were doing the demo, Otis was clowning around trying to make a sound of a seagull. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like some kind of dying crow. I don't know. <laughs> that inspired me to go, and I called my friend uh, Jimmy Gaines, who was working at, at that time at uh, Pepper Tanner uh, Jingle Company, and uh, I said, "Do you have any soundtrack albums out there with uh, over there with any waves and seagull?" He said, "Oh yeah, come on over. I'll, I'll pull some for you." <laughs> So we went through several, and I picked the ones that I picked, and we made a made a tape loop out of them, and uh, that's what's on the record. Sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting in the evening 
You know, another song that I loved growing up on the completely opposite sonic spectrum uh, was Love is a Battlefield by Pat Benatar. Yeah, great uh, song. I, I, yeah, it kind of always sort of was creepy to me with that sort of like just the vibe of the track and like the, the whistling and stuff like that. Right. But I, I always thought that was such a cool, evocative song. Um, and it was fun to talk to Holly Knight, who wrote that one along with Better Be Good to Me by Tina Turner. Yeah, The um, Warrior by Scandal. Yeah. Which I think I had in my mind kind of maybe thought was Pat Benatar. Yeah, the it mind makes, will do strange things like that. It makes perfect sense that like, oh yeah, the, you, you start figuring out who the writer was behind some of these huge hits where right. like maybe you didn't previously know um, the identity of the person who came up with the song and you start going, oh yeah, I see connections. You begin I to hear a style. Themes here, you yeah. know, which is like something that uh, we don't get as much anymore because there's not as many people who are just straight up songwriters that yeah. aren't the artist or producer or whatever. That's true. And, and Holly ha- has a cool story with, with how uh, Love is a Battlefield came to be. She had just, uh, was just kind of finishing up with her band Spider. She had a, kind of a solo thing and was teaming up with uh, producer Mike Chapman, who had done some really great stuff with Blondie and The Knack and stuff. Um, kind of a fun story about her coming to LA and, and writing that song. Yeah, pretty much right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. Let's check it out. So... The first day I went over to his house and showed him like these chords and, you know, I was just showing them to him and the phone rang and it was Pat Benatar and she said, Mike, I'm doing a live record and I need a hit song. Will you write me a hit song? Because hmm. she had worked with him on some of the tracks on her, her very first record. Right. And he said, yeah. He said, I've, I've got Holly Knight here and she's a writer that I'd sign and we were going to write today, so we'll write for you. Nice. <laughs> I know. This just sounds like this would never happen anymore. This sounds like a fairy yeah. tale. Um, so he hung up the phone, and I started playing the chords, Love's Battlefield. He goes, that's really, I like that. Let's use that. Let's write with that. But now, because it's so poppy and stuff, let's mix it up. Let's use a really, let's come up with like a really strange, fucked up title. Yeah. He goes, let's, it's something just really really strange you know like love is a battlefield and he just like spit it out yeah and i remember looking at him going okay that's it <laughs> and then so we wrote the whole song in one day wow. but for one line that we just couldn't figure out what to do with it and it was in the chorus so it had to be really good and we spent two weeks working on that one line which which line was that no promises no demands i was gonna ask you about that line because that that's an incredible line, and to me, that sort of like it, it almost like captures like the spirit of an era and and kind of the way relationships, you know, it's like uh, it's true. yeah, almost like kind of even like a sexual revolution, like the way the way people come together, no right. promises, no demands. Let's just do this, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you could even see it now. I mean, I know this sounds awful, but you I think like this, you could, you could see it in a commercial, yeah, in a car commercial huh. for Jaguar. <laughs> No promises, no demands. Yeah. <laughs> Live right. free. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. But the funny thing was, we would sit out by his pool, and he had like this housekeeper that would sort of serve us lunch, <laughs> and we were like rolling joints, and, <laughs> and and then he taught me how to fly paper airplanes. Um, <laughs> sure. And so I would write down like a title or something, and I would shoot the paper airplane across the pool to him. Right. He would read it, and like, nope. <laughs> and then he writes something fly back. I mean, just this really silly thing. And you're like, this is great. What major artist is going to call tomorrow? <laughs> 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 right. Yeah, 
You know, I think it's cool how many songwriters, Hall of Famers we've talked to, and Jeez. Holly is one of those yeah. uh, in the in the official Songwriters Hall of Fame in New York, and of course uh, Steve Cropper, uh, another one, and Loretta Lynn, Irving Bergie, who wrote Deo. I mean, everybody yeah. in the world knows that song. Yeah. Uh, Felix Cavalieri from the Rascals. You know, it's a beautiful morning, and and, and all those hits. Bobby Braddock of he stopped loving her today fame that George Jeez. Jones turned into like probably the most classic country <laughs> record of all time. John Oates from, from Hall and Oates. I mean, Man. uh, it, I would have never believed when we started this podcast that we'd have the chance to, um, speak to some of these people whose songs have like literally shaped our lives. It would almost be easier to list the guests that aren't Hall of Famers. <laughs> right. Exactly. Know? Exactly. Um, and I actually was when we were listening to that Holly piece there, I noticed it sounded kind of echoey. Yeah. Uh, there was like reverb on all our mics. And I think that's because when you've written as many hit songs as Holly Knight has, you got a great big old house. <laughs> it's gonna, it's right. gonna echo a little bit. Yeah, I, I think our voices might have been reflecting off the platinum records <laughs> on the wall too. Um I'd tell you who else had an amazing and beautiful house that we got to visit was Mac Davis. Oh yeah. Um yeah. and you know, not only did I love going to see a man's beautiful house, but right. that's, that's always nice. But sometimes I think that I that I only do this podcast so I can talk to people that knew Elvis. That is sometimes. absolutely <laughs> the only reason you do this podcast. I, you know, it's uh, it's just such a uh, his music has been such a big part of my life. I'm such a uh, such a fan, and to talk to Mac Davis, who wrote "Don't Cry, Daddy," yeah, in the ghetto, a little less conversation, and even uh, a couple songs like you know, uh, "Clean Up Your Own Backyard," which is a little bit of a, a more of a, an obscure song, a deep cut. Yeah, but I was I was super stoked to talk to Mac. I mean, yeah. what a, what an honor. And what a great, like, down-to-earth, just humble, nice guy. I mean, immediately likable. And I think probably one of my favorite songcraft moments that uh, is not captured uh, on the actual podcast is me watching uh, Mac Davis show you how to play In the Ghetto on his guitar, sitting in in his den. And uh, your smile was so wide that I was concerned your face was going to split in half. <laughs> yeah, I did. I had to go get a chemical peel afterwards <laughs> to, to replace the damage I did from that smile. But yeah, that that was an amazing moment. Hearing how he wrote it, hearing it, even better, he told one of the greatest Elvis stories that I think we captured from anybody yeah. about uh, going to the movies with Elvis and, and kind of what happened then. In fact, I won't tell anymore. I just want us to listen to it. Yeah. I was doing a concert in West Memphis, Arkansas, at a little small college there. And uh, it's right across the state line from, from Memphis, Tennessee. Right. And I'd gotten a call from uh, Elvis's guys. Uh, would I like to come see a movie with them? They were going to start watching a movie at, at 11 o'clock or something like that. Right, of course. And he rented the theater. And I'd heard all this, you know, these years of, about Elvis renting the Memphian Theater and and uh, what a special thing it was. And boy, my eyes got, you know, huge. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I want to go there yeah. and see that. So I went and uh, walked in and uh, when everybody walked, went to sit down and, and see the movie, uh, Elvis was sitting right out there in the middle of the theater with Linda Thompson, hmm. who he was going with at the time. And... Uh, I just grabbed me some popcorn and walked right down there and stepped over the the guy that was sitting on the end of the row and walked down and sat down next to to him and Linda. And it was the first time I'd ever been around him when I wasn't just surrounded by the Memphis Mafia or people that 
you know, hanging right. on every word. And uh, we had a great time. Laughed, made fun of the movie, you know, <laughs> and uh, all that stuff. And I, I really kind of felt like I'd got to know him a little bit yeah. that night. And uh, just before the movie was over, I I had to use the restroom. We'd been drinking beer as well as eating popcorn. <laughs> Went back to the restroom, and one of his, uh, one of the bodyguard types came back there. I won't. Uh, I don't even remember the kid's name. It, it, it wasn't Red or Sonny West, right. but came back and told me that I wasn't supposed to be sitting by Elvis, and that, mm. that I should be sitting back with the invited guests in the back row. And I got really upset. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Elvis came out, and uh, the movie was over before I got back in there. And he could see something's wrong. He said, what's the matter, man? And, and I told him, I said, you don't even know what's going on around you. You have no idea. And uh, some guy just came in there and told me that I wasn't supposed to sit with you, and it's made me feel like this big. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, I've, I, it's not like I haven't written several number one records right. for you and, <laughs> right. and he says who was it that told you? i said i i'm not going here to get anybody in trouble i just said it just you know it just it's not a feeling that i like having right. he said well how can i make it right man yeah. <laughs> and i just thought for a second i said i don't know give me your home number <laughs> awesome. and he says uh, okay <laughs> and he says uh, Charlie Hodge was standing there charlie was the guy who handed him his scarves, handkerchief yeah. Yeah, yeah. scarves and stuff and also was an old friend. He played rhythm guitar and stuff. Yeah. He says, Charlie, give Mac my phone number. And uh, Charlie says, huh? <laughs> give me, what, what? Give me your phone number. And he says, yeah. And he says, which number? What number? And Elvis says, my home number, man. And he didn't know what it was. <laughs> that's, that's great. And he says, says, you mean the number at the house? And he says, yeah, the one I answer when you call me at my house. <laughs> and Charlie goes to Joe Esposito, and I could see him. Joe was the the, the tour manager and, right. and uh, you know, the, the highest up of, of the Memphis Mafia guys. And I could see him <laughs> shaking his head and saying, well, go ahead, go ahead and give it to him. <laughs> if Elvis said give it to him, give it to him. Yeah. So he wrote it down on a matchbook cover and gave it to me. And uh, I never called it. <laughs> but I, and I told Elvis, I said, I'll probably never call it, man, but it, it makes me see you in a different light. Yeah. Huh. And Elvis says, no, man, you can call me anytime. Wow. And, uh, but I never called him. You know, if you're going to talk to people that wrote songs for Elvis and you get the chance to do it, you've got to talk to Mike Stoller. Oh, man. <laughs> I think talking to Mike Stoller, that was the first interview that we aired uh, this year, 2016. Yeah. And uh, probably one of the greatest thrills of my life to go over to his house and interview him. I mean, I cannot think of a songwriter who has had any greater impact on the development of early rock and roll and R&B than Mike Stoller. I mean, you're talking about the guy who wrote Kansas City, Yakety Yak, Searchin', Jailhouse Rock, Poison Ivy, Stand By Me. Hound Dog. Hound Dog, Love Potion Number Nine. Yeah. I mean, it's like every song that defined rock and roll was yeah. written by Mike Stoller and his partner Jerry Lieber. And for all that legacy and all the years Mike's been in the game, he still has the energy of, of a teenager. Yeah. Um, and it, it was it was a great day spending with him. I was actually kind of nervous walking oh, into that interview. You know, just I wanted to be on point. I mean, that is a guy who um, has probably done more to shape our popular culture yeah. than, than really anyone else. And you think of, of figures like 
um, you know, Chuck Berry or Elvis Presley. And um, those people are more kind of the stars. Right. But when you really think about people who were creating music, I mean, Mike Stoller is right up there next to those names as the guy who was shaping what we now yeah. understand to be rock and roll. And it was so cool to hear him tell the story. You know, they had written Hound Dog for Big Mama Thornton. They had started out as these teenage kids writing songs for R&B artists. And it was really cool to hear the story of how he found out um, that Elvis had cut Hound Dog, which, of course, launched them into a whole different realm. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. I was coming back from uh, Europe on my first trip to Europe. I'd been gone three months. And um, I came back on a beautiful ship called the Andrea Doria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it we almost made it to New York, but it sank. Mm-hmm. It was there was a collision with the Stockholm, nice. and uh, we managed to get off into a broken lifeboat. Mm. Wow! And I was picked up by a freighter, uh, and eventually got to New York. And Jerry was in New York to meet me. We lived in L.A. at the time, mm. but he knew I was coming in uh, in not such a dramatic fashion. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I had sent, from the freighter, I sent a telegram to Atlantic Records because Jerry and Lester were going to be there and so on. And then Jerry was at the dock when I came down the gangplank, and he ran up to me and said, Mike, we got a smash hit. (laughs) (laughs) I said, you're kidding He said, no, Hound Dog. I said, Big Mama Thornton? He said, no, some white kid named Elvis Presley. Then I heard it, I think, a day or two later. And, uh, you know, it it didn't have (laughs) the right feel. Too fast and kind of nervous sounding compared to Big Mama's record. Yeah, yeah. And uh, after it sold about 7 million singles... I began to see some merit in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you warmed up to it. Well, if Mike Stoller represents sort of the beginning of what we think of as top 40 popular music, I mean, the guy who is um, definitely involved current day to that same degree is Toby Gad. Yeah. And uh, he's a guy who has written and produced for everybody from uh, Miley Cyrus to. Uh, Jordan Sparks, Alicia Keys, Robin Thicke, Demi Lovato, I mean, Kelly yeah. Clarkson, Carly Rae yeah. Jepsen, Madonna. I mean, the guy <laughs> has has uh, has written songs like If I Were a Boy for Beyonce. Um, Big Girls Don't Cry. Big Girls Fergie. Don't Cry yeah. for Fergie. All of Me by, by John Legend, which, of course, is just like already like a modern day yep. classic. I mean, he's one of those guys that uh, is very much on the pulse of sort of what's happening in, in music right now. And, you know, Toby's kind of a part of, of today's writing culture, which is, you know, producers and writers writing with artists. You know, yeah. Stoller is more about that team, him and Jerry writing for the artists. But Toby's in there in the room with Beyonce, with Fergie, you know. Yeah. And what's interesting about it is, you know, it goes beyond just songwriting process. And we talk about the way to write a song, the chord, the lyric and all this. But now you get the artists in the room and you're kind of hearing their story and right. telling their story. And you become a little bit, you know, friend and counselor right right right. um, 
And so Toby has a, an interesting story about that, uh, writing Big Girls Don't Cry with Fergie, how that yeah. all kind of played out. Yeah, being able to walk into a room with someone, make a connection, bring out their deepest emotions, make them feel comfortable, and create a hit song out of it. I mean, it's not something that just anybody can do. And that's a lot of hats to wear. Yeah. And, uh, and it, Toby kind of lays it out pretty well in this story. I got to spend uh, half a day with her, and she was... Uh, um, she had just broken up with her boyfriend, but also had just gotten over uh, over an addiction and wow. really felt like at that point in time she had to focus on her career. And so the breakup wasn't uh, because of love. It was really about because she needed to focus and center herself and and get back on track with mm. her career. Yeah. And... So that's the tragedy in in Because Don't Cry, that she loves the guy, but she has to break up with him. And um, I, I think that reflects really well in the song. That's why it resonates, I feel. Um, the writing was very easy, very effortless, because she, she was in tears when she came in, and <laughs> it was wow. a very emotional session. Wow. And, and I sort of said, just to try to put this, uh, like write him a letter and, and put these emotions on, on paper and... And then the first verse was there very quickly, and um, I had the guitar out, and we got a melody to it, and then we sort of figured out where the chorus could go, and um, it went really fast, like not even three hours, and the wow. song was written, and then we recorded wow. it in another two hours or so. You know, that's something that people don't always realize, that, you know, there's such an emotional component sometimes to writing. I mean, here you're talking about your first writing session with her, and she comes in, you know, heavy with these emotions. That's mm -hmm. a... That's a really kind of delicate spot to be in as a as a writer. Mm -hmm, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and and then it's really important to to listen to the artists and and try to put their feelings into a song and yeah. and not try like have no egos in the room. Just try to make the best out of that emotion. Sort of capture that lightning in the bottle. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But of course, not every writing session ends up turning into a great friendship between <laughs> writer and artist. And, uh, you know, Billy Steinberg, uh, the writer of Madonna's classic, Like a Virgin, has a story about something just like that. Yeah, you would think that uh, a, a great uh, Hall of Fame songwriter like Billy, a guy who has got an incredible resume, probably wrote half the uh, the hits that we knew from the right. charts in the '80s. You would think that he'd be a guy that is always uh, hobnobbing with the uh, with the stars that he's writing the songs for. But man, amazing story about the first time he met Madonna, which, by the way, was <laughs> after "Like a Virgin" was right. an enormous hit. <laughs> Tom and I met her several years after Like a Virgin was a hit. I had tried to meet her immediately. <laughs> right. I figured, wow, she just had an, the biggest hit of her career with a song that I wrote. She's got to be dying to meet me. <laughs> right. She's going to want to co-write a song with me. She's going to want to record another song of mine. But it turned out that that was not the case. Huh. So we, Tom and I were invited to Freddie Demand's 50th birthday party. Freddie was Madonna's manager. Mm -hmm. It was a black tie thing. Right. So you had to wear a tuxedo. And I'm not a person that's that comfortable in like tuxedos. So I, I already felt a little 
awkward, you know, right. walking in in a tuxedo. And uh, we went into the party and we walked out onto a terrace. And Steve Bray was out there. And Steve was a fellow songwriter who I knew, you know, vaguely. I had met him before. I wouldn't say we were close friends, but I knew him. But I also knew that he had written songs with Madonna. So Tom and I were standing talking to him, and then I could see coming towards us Madonna with uh, Warren Beatty. She was dating him at the time. So I thought to myself, well, this is, this is perfect. I mean, Stephen Bray, her songwriting partner, he, to make the introduction, this is perfect. So she walked over to Stephen and Tom and me and with Warren. And Stephen said, uh, Madonna, I'd like you to meet Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly, who wrote Like a Virgin. And Warren started to laugh because I think he was thinking, well, why would she be introduced to the guys who wrote Like a Virgin? She must know them. Right. But in fact, she didn't know us and we didn't know her. And so I just took a deep breath and I said, hey, Madonna, it's, I've wanted to meet you for so long. And she just said, well, now you did. <laughs> and she grabbed Warren and walked off. You know, speaking of awkward moments, we got a chance to interview Bill Withers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, that interview stands out to me because Bill, let's say, wasn't just all that excited about <laughs> what we were doing here. He does not care about interviews, and yeah. he does not care about making an interviewer's life any easier. But we knew that going in. Right. Like, I know that Bill Withers is famously kind of, uh, I don't even know if cantankerous is the word. He just has no... Prickly. Yeah, he's a little prickly. Yeah. He has no desire whatsoever to uh, to hand you anything or, or make it easy. And he doesn't want to give a bunch of, like analysis about something just to make something up and have something good to right. say. But don't feel sorry for Scott and Paul when you're <laughs> listening to this because it, it actually goes down. For me, it's kind of one of my favorite interviews. Number one, because I, I still laugh when I listen to it right. and listen to kind of the way he handled it. He chewed us up and spit us up. Yeah. And number two, Bill Withers. Yeah, right? It's, yeah. I mean, he's killer. He's still so awesome. And, and just the privilege to talk to him and even get kind of swatted around by him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was something that I still appreciate. Yeah, I'll take it. You know what? Whenever anybody asks me, you know, what were you thinking when you... I was thinking that. Whatever's written, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't mastered the art of thinking about one thing and writing about another one. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, well, many of your songs off of those first couple records, I mean, they, they've been recorded by iconic artists. I mean, people like Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross, Paul McCartney, Gladys Knight, Willie Nelson, Sting, Mick Jagger, Michael Jackson. What's it like for you to hear some real heavy hitters interpret your songs? I don't know. I've never had it any other way. Huh. <laughs> you know, it's like somebody says, what's it like to be you? I don't know. I've never had anybody. <laughs> it's my life. Uh, <laughs> all right. Check off that question. No, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a very common question. Nobody yeah. ever, 
gives an honest answer. There, there's <laughs> got to be a degree, though, to which you hear something that you wrote coming out of Aretha Franklin's mouth or out of Paul McCartney's mouth or Mick Jagger's mouth. You know, these iconic voices that you've heard sing all these millions of songs. I mean, there's got to be something a little, uh, a little trippy about that. No, I don't have that gene, you know. No. <laughs> have you ever heard a version of one of your songs that you liked better than your own? I wouldn't tell you if I, <laughs> you know, why would I tell you that? Because uh, you like us. <laughs> you know, why would I answer a question like that? It's, it's a lose-lose question. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. I got to ask it, though. You know, one of the albums in your catalog that, in my opinion, doesn't get as as much attention as maybe it should nowadays is about love from 1978. And what I find interesting about that is that all but one of the songs were collaborations with Paul Smith, the the jazz pianist known for you know his work accompanying Ella Fitzgerald. Um, but that was really the first time that you'd like teamed up with someone else to write multiple songs for one record. Um, and I'm curious to to hear about your working relationship with with Paul and, and you know the nuts and bolts of of how you guys kind of work together and and what that experience was was like for you to kind of approach it with a teammate, so to speak. I don't really know Paul that well. I don't think I've had, talked to him much since. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at that time I was just trying to. I was just I don't know. It was toward the end. I was just trying to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't have any specific memories of that, you know. Do you recall how the the two of you wound up working together? I think I met him up in San Jose, where he lived. Yeah. And he had played with Ike Turner and people like that, you know. Mm. So I never really got in this close relationship with Paul. Mm. Do you recall if you got together, like, in a studio or in a room and just kind of intentionally wrote a bunch of songs for the album? Or or what did that collaboration look like? (laughs) Shit, I don't know. You're talking (laughs) to Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not this great memorable experience that, you know. Right, right. Changed my, I was just doing, you know, right. doing whatever, you know. Sure, yeah. Not not as epic as I might like to imagine. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny, actually. Your memories are probably more glamorous to us than they are to you. <laughs> With the, yeah. all this beautiful yeah. pixie dust on your memories. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the one song on that record that you wrote solo was Memories Are That Way, speaking of memories. And I've heard you say that it's one of your favorites of your own catalog. What is special about that song for you? I don't know. Well, you know, it's just, as a, I like it as opposed to not liking it, you know. Right. That's about <laughs> as close as it gets with me. Were there songs that made it onto some of your records that you did not like? Oh, of course. I get up every day and I, I put on shoes that I can't stand. <laughs> uh, I eat something for breakfast that I hate. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I go down and buy and drive this car that I bought because I didn't like it. You know, and you get on the phone for an hour with two guys that you can't stand. Yeah, me <laughs> too. Well, you gotta love Bill Withers. <laughs> yep. But thank God, not every interview is quite that difficult. <laughs> right. you, you get some people that are just absolute sweethearts, and I would say that one of them was Lori McKenna. Yeah, absolutely, and and she has had such a um, cool career. I mean, she's kind of a, a Boston-based indie folk artist who has also um, had great success 
by going down to Nashville and, and writing songs of people down there. I think Faith Hill was kind of the the person who first latched onto her mm-hmm. songs and started recording them. And um, Tim McGraw has got this big hit this year with uh, Humble and Kind, yep. which is uh, another great song of hers. And boy, talk about just a, a sweet, friendly person. Absolutely. I felt like we were just kind of, even though it was over the phone, it was like we were just sitting at our kitchen table having a cup of coffee like old friends. I and, felt like uh, we were sitting by a fire, but kitchen table is fine. Yeah, oh, I felt like the kitchen table was actually by a fire. Oh, I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It drinking, was like a pizza oven in the kitchen. constant comment. <laughs> Bigelow teas. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, uh, she had a great story about just how Girl Crush came together, which of course became like the biggest country yeah, song of the geez. year last year. And uh, um, kind of cool just to get a little window into before this song was a thing, how it how it came into existence. I wrote it with Liz Rose and Hillary Lindsay, mm. and we call ourselves the Love Junkies, um, <laughs> just to be funny, really. We gave ourselves a name. Where'd that name come from? Hillary remembered that we were writing our first song, the three of us together, Yeah. and we were trying to rhyme with a word that we think may have been country. We were trying to, like, you know, rhymers, where I was trying, and somebody right. said, Love Junkie, <laughs> and... And Liz said, that should be our name, the Love Junkies, you know, because we're always writing songs about love. But, right. um, but the three of us write together about every other month for three days at a time because I live up in Boston and I go sure. to Nashville once or twice a month for three days. Yeah. And we we just stay at Liz's house and we sort of, we write from the minute we wake up in the morning until the minute somebody falls asleep. <laughs> and we just, you know, have girl time and... And we eat food and drink wine sometimes and drink coffee all the time and right. and write songs. And we had written that song, um, it was like the second day of a trip, and we we got up at, Liz and I get up early, and um, Liz and I were sitting in the kitchen, and I said I wanted to write a song called Girl Crush, and she didn't like the title at first. <laughs> Liz didn't like it, because it was one of those hashtag things, you know, right. and you see on social media, right. and she's like, oh, I hate, you know, that hashtag stuff, and she sort of shut me down, and, <laughs> and so we had breakfast and talked for a minute, and then Hillary came down, and and I sort of threw the, you know, threw it out like I hadn't said it before to Liz. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right. God. Try again. You know how you do that? Like yeah. if someone, you know, you just ask the next person. Right. But, um, your mom but, tells you no, you ask your dad kind of thing. Ex- <laughs> exactly. So I did the mom-dad thing, and, um, and thankfully I did because Hillary – who I consider to be a genius. Um, she she sang the first four lines of that song wow. exactly the way they are. Wow. And as soon as she did, of course, Liz was like, "Oh, I get it. I'm on board. Let's <laughs> write this." And we wrote it er, like in, an, in about an hour and a half or two hours. And then at eleven that morning, um, Karen and Kimberly from Little Big Town came over to write with us, and we wrote three other songs that day. Wow. So it was day. just one of those things where they came over. Where they were, we were catching up. They said, "What have you guys been writing?" We played them the song. They said they loved it, and then we just moved on, you know. And so yeah. it wasn't really until they recorded it, and we heard some voice, you know, some whispers from like some of the players or people that had been in the studio with with Little Big Town, um, saying, "Oh, the song sounds really good. Wait till you hear it. It sounds yeah. great." So we heard these little, you know, and then we'd see the band and they'd say, "Wait till you hear the songs," you know, right. and. Um, and then we started getting calls from songwriters. When the record came out, our songwriter friends called us. Like Shane McAnally was called me one day, and he was like, "Man, I wish I thought of this." And so <laughs> it, it really, like from the very beginning, just 
took on a, a little life of its own, and yeah. and then just all the support, the community. I got a girl crush. You know, through the stories that we get here on Songcraft, it seems like we've covered a little bit of everything you know we're talking about nashville songs but that's an east coast writer yeah and we hear about things going on in california and we talk about the 50s and the 60s and 70s and through john sebastian of the love and spoonful we even got to go to woodstock yeah i mean it's crazy that um a guy like sebastian wrote so many classic hit songs like summer in the city yeah. and do you believe in magic he even uh of course did the welcome back cotter uh oh, yeah. theme song which um is, is incredible but um he also was one of those guys that played at the legendary yep. you know uh g- like generation defining concert uh, of the century yep. and what's amazing is he was not scheduled <laughs> right. to play which was right. a killer story Well, I was <clears throat> told that this Woodstock Festival was going to be really special. Uh, so I did eventually go to a, an airport near Albany and try to get on a plane to try to get closer. Mm. And uh, here's what happened. I'm looking out on the tarmac kind of hopelessly going, God, are any planes coming in? And I see a helicopter that is a guy packing stuff into the helicopter, obviously instruments, and I look closer, and it is an ex-roadie of the Love and Spoonful. (laughs) And I I start to gesticulate (laughs) until the guy turns around, and he sees that it's me, and he gesticulates towards the staircase right. out onto the tarmac. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do that these days. He goes, you're trying to get to Woodstock. I said, yeah. He says, John, you're, you're never going to be able to do it. There's, there's like, they're, they're closing the, the throughway. Wow. You're not going to be able to do it. So uh, get in this plane. <laughs> I realized. And, wow. Uh, so... My introduction to Woodstock is dead on like the movie wow. intro. Right, the aerial Where view. you fly over this immense area and there's no no visible grass or anything. Amazing. It's all sleeping bags and <laughs> right. Volkswagen buses and campers and on and on. Yeah. So uh, I land uh, and I pretty much head for the backstage because the music business is so much smaller at this point. I know everybody backstage. And there's no security. (laughs) Nobody's invented that yet. (laughs) Right. Uh, And uh, so anyway, I'm tooling around backstage. And then on Saturday, I was back up on stage just, you know, because now it's a hang. I, I hear Michael... Wang say, we got to get somebody to hold them with an acoustic while we sweep the stage because of the electricity. We're going to get in trouble here. Mm. We're going to hurt somebody. Right, because it started raining at that point. And I'm I'm standing between between him, uh, between Michael Wang and Chipmunk, and I'm nodding, right? (laughs) We're all three of us looking out at the crowd. Right. And then I look and I realize... They're not looking at the crowd. They're looking at me. <laughs> and I, I go, guys, 
I don't even have a guitar. And Michael says, well, you have a few minutes to get one. <laughs> right. And that was sort of the attitude. We really needed, uh, just needed warm bodies to keep people busy there. So what happened was I chased around the backstage and found Timmy Harden and borrowed his guitar. And so, I mean, I played that, I played that with no familiar instrument. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) A little intimidating to step up to the mic and see that size crowd and you don't even have your own guitar. (laughs) Quite an amazing thing. Yeah, amazing. Well, another um, Hall of Fame songwriter, just like John Sebastian, but from a, a different generation, is Desmond Child. Oh, yeah. Who wrote so many great rock songs in the 80s. Um, he was the guy that collaborated with Bon Jovi on You Give Love a Bad Name yeah. and Living on a Prayer. Um, I think of songs like Joan Jett's I Hate Myself for Loving You, Alice Cooper's Poison. All the Aerosmith um, stuff. Yeah, tons yeah. of Aerosmith songs like Angel, What It Takes, and yeah. Crazy, and... Um, even Ricky Martin's Live in La Vida Loca. I mean, yep. this guy is like all over the place. He is is like the unbelievable powerhouse of pop rock songwriters. Yeah, and you know, going back to Aerosmith for a minute, I, I remember being a kid and not being really exposed to the Toys in the Attic version of yeah. Aerosmith, but hearing first like, you know, Permanent Vacation, some yeah, of those yeah. 80s records. And Dude Looks Like a Lady. Like that song, I, I remember just popping out of the radio. Yeah. I didn't even know what to make but of it. But not having any idea what it meant, <laughs> right. what this was. Right. And now, thanks to Desmond Child, I know what it meant. And we know who to do this. When I walked in there, they, were, they, they had the loop, but they were singing Cruising for the Ladies. Huh. Wow. And, um, you know, I, the first thing out of my mouth, and this is the first day I worked with them, and, you know, I was forced on them by the AR guy, John Claudner, hmm. who's the one that put me into the share, right, from right. guessing. And so uh, they didn't want it. They'd never collaborated with the outside writer and all that. Yeah. And um, so I said, well, that title, I mean, that hook, I mean, that's so boring. Cruising <laughs> for the ladies. For the ladies. So I was like, yeah. I don't think even Van Halen would put that on a B-side, <laughs> you know, that, that concept. Like, right. you know, cruising down, you know, Sunset Boulevard, top down, and a <laughs> right. red Corvette, you know. Like, right. you know, like what? Cruising for the ladies? No. <laughs> and so they were like, they, no one ever talked to them like that. Right. And then kind of Stephen sort of sheepishly said, well, when I first came up with that hook, I was singing Dude Looks Like a Lady. And I said, what? Dude Looks Like a Lady. I said, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And then Joe said, well, well, boo, we don't know what that means. I said, <laughs> okay, I know what that means. Yeah. Dude Looks Like a Lady. And then Joe said, we don't want to insult the gay community. I said, dude, I'm gay. It wouldn't be insulting <laughs> right. to sing about a, a transgendered, you know, stripper. Right. right. And this whole story came that that all happened because they had gone to a bar and seen a, this gorgeous blonde at the end of the bar, you know, a big, you know, mullet, giant mullet, right. platinum blonde hair. And, and they said, oh, my God, and with beautiful, you know, butt and body and all this kind of stuff and then turns around it's Vince Neil of Motley Crue uh. <laughs> and so that's when they started making the joke right oh wow. my god that dude looks like a lady dude looks like a lady dude looks like a... that's where it was born wow so then Joe and his thing writes that I came up with the title it's like you know you know it's like 
you guys have done too many drugs, okay? <laughs> That's not how it happens. Now, right. you know, world, who are you going to believe? Those two or me? Right. <laughs> the guy who didn't do all the drugs. I'm telling it like it is. <laughs> right. So there you have it. Yep, there you have it. A little window into the world of Songcraft over the last couple of years. Yep, two years in the can. It's hard to believe. I think we're just getting started, though. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of great interviews coming up in 2017 and hopefully far beyond that. So we hope you'll stick with us and continue to follow us at uh, songcraftshow.com. You can find us at Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you at any time. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>